me invite you to open up to the very end, almost the very end of 2 Corinthians this morning. We'll be, be looking together uh, at the last couple verses in chapter 12 uh, and the first bit of chapter 13 before concluding uh, the, the study of 2 Corinthians next Sunday. So we'll, we'll get to the very end of the letter next week. But the, the passage this morning think has a lot to say about expectations, what expectations we hold about a variety of things. As we come into uh, Labor Day weekend, we're, we're sort of reaching the home stretch of summer travel. For some of you, that may be disappointing. For some of you, that may feel like a relief after a busy summer. I was talking to someone uh, about a week ago about some of their summer travels, and they had just come back from a family reunion. That was highly memorable, but memorable for all the wrong reasons. And chief among them was the, the bucolic Airbnb that they had rented together as a family and everyone flew in to be at, left a lot to be desired. Didn't live up to what the pictures looked like. And, and my friend was sharing one of the things that made it particularly difficult was the, the expectations that some of the family members carried into that trip. And they were hoping for the experience to be one way, and it turned out to be very different from what they had expected. And I think for most of us, maybe we carry around expectations that we, we may not even realize we have until they come into contact with reality, right? Until they don't match our experience. And then there are disappointments and, and conflicts and things that come out of that. Sometimes I think we experience frustration in the area of expectations when we run into competing expectations. That we hold one set of expectations and someone else that we're sharing life or an experience with has a different set of expectations. If I say, let's go on vacation, some of you may think about lying on the beach or next to the pool with a book, right? Vacation means doing as little as possible. For someone else, vacation means going to every tourist attraction or every museum in town, right? And filling up the day with as much as possible. And those, those expectations can run into one another. There can be conflict. Or if I were to say, well, let's go out for a nice dinner tonight. Some of you would immediately phone Hen of the Wood and, and make reservations. And someone else in your family may be driving to the nearest Denny's, right, to, to get a table there. And so expectations matter. And, and if you don't want, if you don't enjoy conflict and disappointment, at some point you've got to do the hard work of, of getting your expectations and everyone else's expectations out on the table so they can be discussed and named and worked through. Right? What do you expect? As we come almost to the very end of Paul's letter today, he's drawing that letter to a close. And he's not going to go on vacation with the Corinthians, but he does know that very soon he will be there for a visit with them. Right? The whole point of this letter is to prepare them for his arrival in a few months. But based on his previous visits with them, 
Paul's instincts tell him that there are probably competing expectations about what that visit is going to be like, what they'll encounter when he arrives. And so in order to avoid those unspoken expectations becoming landmines upon his arrival, Paul chooses to to level with them now at the end of his letter. He wants to be clear with them. So if we look at uh, verse 20 in chapter 12, Paul says this. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. Paul's saying, I'm afraid we're going to run into some conflicted, some competing expectations of one another. Which means we should do some clarifying, communicating work now. And it's not just that Paul feels like they have different personal preferences or or points of view. Paul is concerned that some of these expectations that are in different places, are connected to the gospel and the person of Jesus himself. The way a community of people follow Jesus together. So Paul wants to take the time to to name and express those things here in his letter. Let me pray for us as we look at, at what comes after verse 20 here together. Lord, we... We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the fact that it's written to people in community. We don't take it lightly that we get to share our lives with one another. And even in the hard parts about that, we count those relationships as gifts and as a blessing. Lord, would, would you enable these words to clarify our expectations? about ourselves, about our relationship with you, about how we live those things out with each other. Pray that the words of my mouth, pray that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul continues here from verse 20. This is the second half of verse 20 through to the end of, verse, or to the end of chapter 12. And here I think Paul's going to do two things. First, Paul is going to speak to his own set of expectations. He's going to say, this is what I fear and what I expect might actually be the case when I show up in Corinth. Things that concern me. And then at the start of chapter 13, in a few minutes, we're going to look at what Paul imagines the Corinthians are expecting of him. But first, Paul Paul shares his own concerns. He says, I fear that that when I come, there may be discord, there may be jealousy, there may be fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. What a welcoming place to visit, (laughs) to spend time. And he goes on and he says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. 
These are Paul's worries. These are Paul's concerns and expectations for the Corinthians. And in these two verses, Paul names two problems that are already familiar to him in the community in Corinth. And Paul is is anxious that, that these things may be waiting for him when he gets off the ship there at the port in Corinth. These are are problems that have a a backstory, a history already in that place. Fear number one is spelled out in the second half of verse 20. And it's it's a fear Paul has about the quality and the nature of that community, the relationships of of that church with one another. And he says, I'm afraid that when I come back there, I'm going to find that that under the surface, there's still all this oppositional behavior, that you're at odds with each other, that you're jealous of one another, that behind one another's backs, you have nasty things to say about each other, that there are power struggles, that ultimately this community is more concerned about self-preservation and self-promotion And that instead of of being a unified family, I will find division and hostility. That was very much the case when Paul was there last. We we spoke some weeks ago about his painful visit when he was there about a year before this. And Paul is is fearful that if, if that's still the case, that this is going to be yet another difficult stay. Because Paul wants to be clear that our lives, the way we share them with each other as a church community, as a family around the person of Jesus Christ, is not about getting what we want. It's not about being right. It's not about self-promotion. It's about being surrendered to the will and the desires and the plans Christ has corporately for us about serving one another. It's about being others-centered. It's about living into the crucifixion and the resurrection life of Jesus together. And so Paul, Paul raises this as one of his expectations and his concerns coming into this trip. The second one is also a, an issue that has some back history in Corinth. Paul expresses his concern here that there are numerous individuals in the church that continue to be engaged in forms of sexual sin and and promiscuity, and that they they do so without any sign of repentance. Now this, on the one hand, isn't all that surprising because Corinth as a city had a reputation in the ancient world. Sort of like Las Vegas has a reputation in our country, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, there was a saying in the ancient world that to to be like, to live like, to sin like a Corinthian was to do whatever you felt like, right? Engage in any kind of, of sexual behavior that seemed fitting to you. And it seems that, that the church Paul has planted there is, is struggling to adopt 
the way of Jesus in these matters, right? Struggling to understand that, that though our bodies are given to us as gifts that God has created, right, they're not things we do whatever we please with. And Paul, actually, in his first letter to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, speaks about a number of the things that were happening there. He, he counsels them. He warns them against engaging in fornication, which is sex outside of a, a covenant relationship. He, engage, he warns them against adultery. He warns them against the practice of, of ritual prostitution, which was commonplace at the temples in Corinth. He warns them against going to banquets and, and sort of uh, well-heeled gatherings where all kinds of things were taking place in the back rooms. And in one case, at least, he warns them against an incestuous relationship that was openly being practiced within the, the church family. Paul says to them in, in chapter 6 of his first letter, do you not realize that your bodies are members of Christ?" Do you not realize, he says, that, that your bodies are the temple where the Spirit of God dwells and lives? And so then, Paul's understanding is that our bodies are a part of Christ's body. And so, collectively, this, this whole conclusion to chapter 12, Paul is, is sharing these expectations with them. Not because Paul wants to be the morality police. Not because he's concerned with rules and regulations and checking boxes. But for Paul, as we'll see in a little, in a little bit, Paul believes that these matters are deeply connected to our identity as a resurrection people. If that, that whole story about Easter that Jesus is risen from the dead. And if that whole story about Pentecost, that, that Jesus has poured out his spirit to live in our physical bodies, if that's true, Paul says, then it changes how we live. It changes the expectations we have for ourselves and for our communities. Right? If, if Jesus and his spirit really lives among us, then there is no excuse for ongoing hostility and division and enmity with our own body. Jesus isn't at war with himself. And so if he lives in you and he lives in you, you can't be at war with each other, period. And so too, Paul says, if Jesus really lives in our bodies, then our, our sexual choices have to re reflect the, the purity and the fidelity of, of the way Christ expresses his love to us and for us. Right, there needs to be consistency within us. So Paul is saying, these are, are not only my expectations, they are the expectations Jesus has for a resurrection group of people. But moving from there into chapter 13, Paul now turns his attentions to, to trying to imagine what some of the Corinthians' expectations might be for him, right? As he comes back to them, what do they expect from Paul? How do they want Paul to behave, right? What impression do they have of this visit that's coming up? Chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, this, this will be my third visit to you. And as it turns out, it would be Paul's, likely his final visit. 
um, before he was imprisoned in Rome years later. This will be my third visit to you. And every matter, here he's, he's quoting the Old Testament, every matter must be established by the testimony, testimony of two or three witnesses. And so I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while I am absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. There's a, there's a lot of sort of context here, even things that maybe are unspoken, but, but we can gather from the rest of the letter. And these, these verses ultimately, again, boil down to what the Corinthians expect Paul to be like. What kind of leader they want him to be. What kind of apostle they want him to be. What kind of friend they want him to be. And starting way back in chapter 10 in this letter, right, we've had this series of chapters where Paul is essentially giving a defense of his leadership. A defense of the choices he's made defense of, of who he feels Christ has called him to be. And even to defend that, that he believes God has given him the authority to correct and also protect this church that he planted in Corinth. But here he kind of brings all of that to a finer point. And he says, I'm afraid that when I come on this third visit to you, that you'll have bought into a, a different set of expectations, mostly expectations that Paul's opponents have created for him about what he's going to be like. And those, those false expectations are that Paul, when he shows up, he's going to be weak among them. That Paul is going to be pushover. That Paul is too timid to do anything about all the stuff that's going on. Paul is trying to make it clear here. He's trying to be as open as he can, as he said back in verse 20. Right? If, if that's what you expect, if you, if you expect me to just turn a blind eye, then you may not find me as you want me to be when I come. Sometimes we're, we're inclined to ask those who, who are closest to us or, or who love us most fully, Right, to, to give approval to anything we might choose to do. Right, there, there's, a, there's a way of thinking that assumes love means total endorsement. But Paul has a different understanding of his love for them here. And Paul is saying, as, as we heard last week, right, he will selflessly, he will sacrificially, he will patiently love this church, like a father loves his own child, like a father is jealous for the heart of his daughter, as he said back in chapter 11. But Paul says, because I love you, I won't shrink back from telling you the truth. 
And he says here in verses 3 and 4 that he's, he's warned them when he came last time about where there, there were concerns, right? Where things needed to change. And he says, when I come again, I, I need to speak clearly with you this third time. He says, if you want proof that Christ's power is at work in me, he says, I'm not going to show you the power of Christ in this false persona that you want. I'm not going to be powerful in the way I talk. I'm not going to be powerful in the way I look. I'm not going to come and, and cozy up to the powerful people in your community. But, but he says, when I come, you will see that Christ's power lives within me in the way that I desire to turn you toward Christ and away from your sin. Paul says, the power of Christ lives in him. To urge them, to even discipline them if needed, to live out the gospel of Jesus that he's been preaching to them year in and year out. Paul says, if you expect me to leave that part off, you're going to be disappointed. And so now Paul has all, at least, his own expectations and his, his imagined expectations from the Corinthians. He's got them all out on the table. Here's what Paul expects from them. Here's what they are expecting from Paul. But it begs the question, right, who gets to evaluate? Who gets to, to sort out these competing expectations? Is there, is there a way for these to be resolved? And in verses 5 and 6, where I want to finish today, Paul points us to, to who we bring these competing expectations to. He counsels us to bring them into the presence of Jesus for evaluation. Can you help me move, move forward a slide there? Verse 5 and 6. Paul says, don't, don't just take my word for it. Paul says, examine yourselves. See whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Again, Paul points to this central gospel truth. That if we trust who the person of Jesus is, that he lives within our persons. And so he says, bring the shape of your lives. Bring it up and into the presence of who Jesus Christ is. And see, does, does who you are, does the way you're living, does it conform, does it match that reality? Right? Don't make me test you. Don't test me. Test yourselves. Do, do this work of self-examination. Made me think of geometry courses I took when I was back in high school. We were to go up to Mount Mansfield this week when school starts and took Mr. Ham's geometry class. Eventually, I think, we'd get to the concept of congruence. And congruence, if I'm remembering my geometry, Right, and Mr. Ham could correct me afterwards if I'm out of place here. Congruence establishes that two objects have the same shape and the same size, which means that each of the vertices are, are the same and the, the measurements of the sides are the same. 
And so you could have a, a whole worksheet full of shapes printed off. And like I've got in this image up here, you could have a shape at the top and you could ask, are any of these figures congruent with, with the example at the top of the page? And it might not always be possible to tell right off, right? The shapes could be shifted in, in different places and different ways. They could be mixed in with all other sorts of figures. And of course, there are some, some fancy geometry teacher ways of establishing congruence. Right? There's proofs we can do. But kind of a dummies test that any of us could do if we had this printed on a sheet of paper is you could, you could take all of the shapes, or you could take one of the shapes in question. I'm not getting my clicker to work. There we go. And you could cut it out. You could cut out the figure. And you could move it over to that shape at the top of the page. And you could flip it. You could turn it on its side. You could spin it if it's needed. But if the two shapes are congruent, then, then every point and every side will line up perfectly. Right? You establish congruence. Paul, in a, in a similar way, is calling upon anyone who follows Jesus, who desires to have life in Jesus, to submit our own expectations to this kind of testing. Right, to see if our lives, point by point, can be laid over and against this reality that Jesus lives in us. Are they congruent? Paul says, examine yourself. The test isn't about what you're comfortable with. It's not about what I'm comfortable with. It's not about what you expect from me or I expect from you. The test is this. Is every part of us being integrated and, and translated into the other-centered, cross-shaped, resurrection love of Jesus? I say that again. The test is whether every part of us is integrated into the other-centered, cross-shaped, resurrection, love, and life of Jesus. Right, Paul says, do you not realize Christ Jesus is in you? So examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Got one more slide to go here. About an hour from now, many of us will be standing that way, over there, by the Browns River. And standing with a member of our church family, Jean, who's going to be baptized. Right? And, and in that choice, in that action, she is going to be bringing her life, the old shape of her life, to Jesus. And in, and in the beauty and in the mystery of what baptism is, She'll be asking the resurrection, life, and power of Jesus to, to meet her there in the waters. So that as she comes up from the water, her life will be increasingly ordered, increasingly shaped by the lordship of Jesus, the life of Jesus. That there will be increasing congruence. As Jean does that in her own personal confession and choice today, I want to encourage all of us, as Sarah shared with us this morning, not only to, to remember our own baptism and that choice we made, but as Paul says here, to examine ourselves in a fresh way. Test ourselves. Submit ourselves 
more fully to the Lordship of Jesus and asking him to help merge our expectations with his own. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and not a list of, of expectations we can't meet or that we have to strive to meet, but rather a life that we are being invited into with you. A set of expectations that get met through the power of your resurrection life living within us. A set of expectations that are met as we die to our old way of living. And we are increasingly yielded to the love of Jesus Christ for us. Pray that you would do this mighty resurrection work. In your name we pray.